But there was another guy I served with whose uh, grandmother did okay, and she ended up as queen. So, you know, you really do meet, um, you do meet uh, quite a range of people uh, in the armed forces. And, um, and I, th- I think, you know, for me, that's, that's one of the things I love about it. If you want to know about the UK, if you want to know about our country, one way in which you're going to meet people from literally every walk of life, not just from your bubble, not just from your work area, join the army, regular or reserve, you will meet people from backgrounds and parts of the kingdom that you never knew existed. My name is Johnny Ball, and I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit that inspires, trains, and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations, and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force, and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice, and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. Let's introduce you to our guest. This week, we meet Chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Tom Tugendhat, MP. Like our host, Tom has served in the Intelligence Corps and is also a linguist. Johnny and Tom talk about being friends with the opposition, dodgy haircuts and relations with China. They also have a retro moment in the context of the times that we live in by discussing the big society. It's time for you to meet our guest. Tom, it's an absolute delight to see someone, in fact, uh, like yourself, because I I make a habit of making sure that every series of this podcast of Veterans in Politics, we have someone from my own cat patch, uh, the Intelligence Corps. So how are you? We're the only ones who can read. So, you know, that's why we're here. And and hopefully speak as well. Uh, Not that we're particularly known for it in our core, but no, absolutely delighted to sit down with you because I know you're an extremely busy person. And I know that the uh, in these times that we live in, not only as a constituency MP, but also as chair of the uh, Foreign Affairs Select Committee, you are an extremely busy person. But how are you? Yeah, I'm look, I'm really well. I mean, lockdown has really been made for the in-core, hasn't it? Because, you know, we're all dark rooms loads of loads of screen time you know we're the chairborne with the chairborne artillery aren't we you know we just sort of sit back and and, and point at big maps isn't that right isn't it yeah exactly well you're exactly i could couldn't phrase it any better myself but yeah we're we're fit for this and made for this but but in um i mean why on earth as someone of your background um get involved in politics in the first place well i you know i mean like like many other people in uh, the military um you you get into you get into the military because you you want to serve you 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 know you you've got a passion for your country you've got a passion for various um you know ideas you want to see and 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 you know you've also got a bit of a sense of adventure i hope um and uh and so sort of taking that from from the military to politics isn't actually a huge leap um as you'll have heard from many of your other guests the reality is that most of us um just are trying to do our bit you know, whichever side of the house we're on, whichever political party we're from, uh, we're just trying to do our bit. And so, uh, I think it, I think the link between the military and, and, and political services is actually quite strong. Yeah, and you mentioned a few of the guests um, that have that have been on this podcast. Um, you know, the likes of Johnny Mercer, Dan Jarvis, um, and and many others. But 
in terms of your own service, I believe that you've actually served alongside some of these characters and, and Doug Beatty, another one that springs to mind. Is that right? Yeah. So Doug and I served together in, um, in Lash, in Lash Kagar in 2000 and God, I can't even remember six, seven, something like that. And we got, um, uh, we got blown up together. Um, Doug had a, a an office in the basement. Um, it's the only sensible place to keep him really. And the, um, uh, he was only allowed out on good behavior. The, um, which never happened. And he, um, uh, and he was, he was absolutely brilliant. And, and I had a, I had an office upstairs when I was advising the governor and we had a, you know, we had a couple of run-ins with um, uh, suicide bomber and things like that. I mean, you know, it was, it was, it was, well, difficult days. And then, um, and then Dan Jarvis and I um, did a few ops together uh, way down the fish hook actually in, uh, in Helmand and, and on patrols through the desert. I mean, it was, I have to say it's the best bit of soldiering is going on patrol and, and going on patrol with somebody who then becomes a mate like Dan was just fabulous. He's a, you know, his, his policies are complete rubbish, but he's a, he's a brilliant commander and he's a, and he's a, a man of very high integrity. And I, yeah, there is a photo that does the rounds of you and Dan served out there together with some pretty questionable haircuts, if I'm quite honest. Um, hey mate, I, look, this is, this is, this is, you know, this is style. This is, you know, this is not just lockdown. This is, you know, this is my comeback. Richelieu, all is forgiven. Where's D'Artagnan? <laughs> but no, but it, I think it's probably a very unique picture to see of you and Dan together in theatre on operations. And now they can see you both together, albeit on opposite sides of the House of Commons. Um, and it's something I witnessed myself during the Overseas Operations Bill that you both were debating against each other. And it was really interesting to see two veterans in parliament, in politics, debating friends. Um, but it was noted actually by a Labour MP during that that disagreement, that debate, how you debated and, and the nature of that debate. I think it was Stephen Doughty who actually singled you both out and the nature of that, that debate. I mean, is that standard? Would that, do you always get on? that you think in, in Parliament that way? Well, he and I do. I mean, we, we always have done. Look, as I say, I mean, I don't have to agree with him to have huge respect for him. I mean, he is, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll say it again. He is a man of the highest integrity and somebody who I'm very, very honoured to be able to call a friend. I mean, he's, you know, he and I have been through a lot together and you don't need me to tell you that it's in adversity you get to know people. And my God, he's been through it. And uh, and he's consistently come up, you know, demonstrating the qualities that you'd expect of, um, well, of a very fine individual. And, and I think he is. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm really proud of Dan. I think he's a wonderful man. That doesn't mean I agree with him. I think he's wrong on the overseas operations bill. I think he's wrong on quite a lot of things too. But, you know, he's not wrong for the wrong reasons. He's, he's, you know, he's just got a different perspective than me. And you know, the whole point about Parliament is that we debate and we discuss and we try and come up with the best answers. I mean, you know, and if we can persuade each other and if we can't vote on it. Yeah, just just to see you in Parliament performing in that way and having that mutual respect was so powerful for me. It really, as someone that evangelises on the values and standards of the armed forces community, in every walk of life, not just politics, but business, uh, society, our communities, I was really excited to see they were, you know, in, in the way that you behaved as politicians. I thought, well, 
if we can bottle this up and put this in our local communities and have people with these backgrounds and it's, it doesn't need not necessarily be the armed forces it could be the blue light services but those people that are purpose and values driven then surely our politics is going to be better for it do you, do you not think well i think a sense of duty look there are many ways in which people can serve a community and i have to say i've been really struck in this covid crisis you know there's some very clear you know examples of genuine devotion and heroism that we've seen in the blue light services that's that's completely obvious and and something that frankly i think uh, well i'm certainly humbled by and i I'm, I'm deeply deeply grateful for but there are other people who haven't always been recognized who've also demonstrated that you know nurseries and and school teachers who kept going but also supermarket staff taxi drivers you know in in, in my community which is pretty rural if you don't have taxi services there aren't any buses you're going to get if you don't have taxi services a lot of old people will be unable to get to essential medical service you know medical appointments and things like that you know and the 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 courage of uh, you know and the, and, the, and the devotion of some of those drivers has been you know really impressive and many of them have gone above and beyond um if you if you talk to those who are running supermarkets at the moment you'll see look people aren't turning up because you know they just want the cash it's not they're turning up because they realize this is an important thing to do and it really matters that people are fed it really matters that we have access to services at this time so i have to say you know i get your point and i i do think it's you know it's more obvious if you like in the uniformed and blue light services but that doesn't mean you don't see courage and integrity in many other walks of life too you really do yeah no i think so um, perhaps we have been a bit retro with a big society here. Did it come too soon? And uh, you know, Cameron tried to shine a light on that. And now is people step into that light, perhaps. Is it time for a resurgence of that, the big society, do you think? I have to say, I always thought he was right. I mean, I think I think one of the great strengths of the United Kingdom, that's why I'm a conservative and why Dan's wrong, is that the state doesn't need to do everything. It's that actually um society and community does matter. And uh, you know, whether that's church groups or scouts or you know local charities or whatever the free association of free people voluntarily acting in support of their neighbors and and community is hugely powerful and much more powerful than pressed you know pressed men and women and you know we see this you know there's a reason we run a volunteer army in 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 this country it's because it's damn sight better than a conscript one you know you've got people who really want to be there who know who are you know who know why they're there, who are genuinely motivated and, and really want to do it. And, and the same is true, um, you know, when you ask people to give time for a community project, you very often notice that you can do things better um, through volunteer uh, services than you can uh, through state ones. Now, of course, that's not universally true. Uh, you know, I certainly don't want a volunteer surgeon, but uh, you know, there are there are there are there are many ways in which you can uh, you can motivate people better um, through uh, different ways of doing it. Yeah, I and I certainly think I do agree with you in part that this moment that we've lived in has been about the community, and I think that's what you and you refer to things like community conservatism. Um, so I understand, and we've spoken about the big society, but I do think there is a a weight, and people expect. Um, and finally, we've seen again the visibility of our uniformed services and the veterans community in our communities. Um, do you think that um, that's been obvious in the past, or it's this moment has really risen to all of those communities to the surface? 
I look, I think they certainly surfaced. I mean, I think I think that's true. And you've certainly seen many of the sort of volunteer organisations within our community sort of stepping up that one one step forward, um, and and that's made a big difference. Um, but I think that you know we've got to be careful. I mean, I'm hugely proud of uh, having had the privilege to serve in in in, in the Int Corps, and uh, you know, like you, I'm very grateful for the friendships I've made. Some of them you listed already, and others uh, you may know from from your own service. Um, but the reality is that, you know, I'm I'm very lucky to have met many interesting and decent people in many walks of life, and um, and 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 our community is made stronger by all of them, not just by those in uniform. Yeah, I think that's a skill. Um, if I can, may if I may indulge in the uniqueness of the armed forces, we do have an ability to get on with absolutely everyone um, from different cultures and backgrounds, and I think that's that's all power to us in order to bring those communities together. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, one one of the people I I knew got to know very well in uh, Iraq. It was actually had been sold by his grandfather uh, when he was uh, a very small child, and even in the 70s, um, social services thought that was a bit wrong, and so he got taken into care. Um, but uh, you know, he ends up being uh, RSM of the Royal Marines unit and did incredibly well for himself, and has actually in the last few years set up a business and made an awful lot of money. I mean, he's, he's really demonstrated his. You know, he's paid back society and then some. I mean, he's an amazing guy. I'm really, really proud to be friends with him. But there was another guy I served with whose uh, grandmother did okay, and she ended up as queen. So, you know, you really do meet um, you do meet uh, quite a range of people uh, in the armed forces. And um, and I, th- I think, you know, for me, that's, that's one of the things I love about it. If you want to know about the UK, if you want to know about our country, one way in which you're going to meet people from literally every walk of life, not just from your bubble, not just from your work area, join the army, regular or reserve. You will meet people from backgrounds and parts of the kingdom that you never knew existed. Yeah, I think so. You know, just being on patrol in any snapshot in time in recent operations, um, you'll be on patrol with members of the Commonwealth um, and even members uh, from Yorkshire as well was my experience. Uh, yeah. So big shout out to the, the boys from One Yorks. Uh, very happy times that I had. But do you think, I mean, like me as well, you're a linguist. Do you think that knowledge of languages and culture enables you just to understand people a little bit better? So I, I think it does. I mean, you know, it's not, a, it's not a secret. If you can talk to somebody, you can get on better with them normally. Um, not universally the case. There are some people it would be much better not to talk to. But the, um, the, the reality is that I think there are, there are many ways of, of, of getting on with people and getting to know people. But, but languages really do help. And um, I, studied, um, I studied theology mostly because I was idle, but, um, but also because I thought it was interesting. And the, um, and the reality is that I couldn't have studied a more useful course because through uh, theology, I then went on to study uh, Arabic and that was useful. But actually through theology, you know, you're constantly trying to understand how people think about structure, how people think about family, how think people think about authority, how they think about society and so on. And it's, it's you know, I think with languages and theology, I, I have to say I found it, you know, very, very useful, um, certainly serving in the Middle East, of course, but actually just serving around the world, serving even at home, you know, because what you're trying to do in the armed forces, and people often miss this, is you're not, you're not going out there trying to kill people. What you're actually trying to do is you're trying to shape events so that you get the result you want. Now, often, not always, but often, preferably without 
doing any harm, you know, without using, as the euphemism goes, kinetic activity. Um, and, you know, understanding how people think, what motivates them, what might change their moods, what might change their minds is, uh, is a fundamental part of soldiering. And, and, you know, as an intelligence officer in particular, that's exactly what you're there for. Yeah, hundred percent. Obviously, we're inclined to um, lean towards that that form of conflict. Human terrain analysis is is a is an obsession of our trade in certain elements of that, and understanding um, our adversaries and the people within which we operate as well is 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 deeply important to us. Um, do you think though that kind of background, that kind of approach, has equipped you well for your current role as as a chair of the um, Foreign Affairs Select Committee? Because I know you've been pretty outspoken. Uh, about some of the international threats and indeed uh, targeted yourself uh, by by uh, agents within uh, the international space um so do you think that uh, that that background has equipped you well and and what's that experience been like as chair of the foreign affairs select committee so i mean i think i think the fact that you know those of us you know have, have served in uniform have literally been on the front line of foreign policy because that's that's what it is right i mean it's not this isn't just some sort of boy's own adventure we decide to go on. This is these are supposed to be maybe they're not always, but they're supposed to be, um, you know, deliberate actions in pursuit of uh, the interests of British foreign policy. And so, having done some of them, you do have an understanding of quite what you're trying to achieve. And I think that does. I mean, I think that does help. Um, but I also think that um, y- you know. In many countries, having having served in uniform gives a credibility because it's not just the UK you're dealing with. Of course, you're dealing with many countries around the world, and <coughs> excuse me, and um, and for many, that's uh, that's just a cold. By the way, that's not COVID. I have, I've had the test. No, I'm you, like the guy. You have to make your excuses, don't you? you yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, I'm like the guy who got a splinter at the Somme and got you know got sent home for a splinter. It's rubbish, isn't it? Um, the um, the um, you know, a lot of other countries having uh, military service adds credibility to your position. And so, you know, and I, I think it does, you know, that helps a bit too. Well, there are, there are 50 of you in parliament um, now, and as we established yeah. four from our own core, so we definitely punch above our weight in the intelligence core uh, within our parliament. Um, but um, in terms of the, the post COVID-19 world that we're about to face internationally, I mean, has this been a moment, for the rise of globalism, if we look at the way that the international community has cooperated over vaccines, um, or has this been uh, seen people retreat um, into their own nation states? Because if we look at international travel and the restrictions, and also where we perceive threats coming from and what those threats might be, I mean, is is that the end of globalism or just the start? No, it's not the end of globalism, but it's um, but but the nation state is back. And uh, it would be wrong to uh, ignore that. But what we've seen over the last, not just since COVID, but over the last four or five years, is the re-emergence of the nation state as the single building block of many people's identity. Now, the nation state is slightly, you know, what you mean by the nation state may not be quite the same as what I mean by it, in the sense that there are uh, forces towards subnational identities, whether that's Catalonia or Scotland. Um, and, you know, that, uh, you know, that's, that's a challenge for many many of us who um, uh, see national you know national identity in a different way. Um, but it's certainly true that the nation state is back. If you look at if you look at, for example, the PPE squabbles in March last year, 
where even European Union countries put up barriers to PPE uh, trade within Europe. If you look at, for example, the way that the vaccine rollout has been uh, in many ways a race um, run by capitals, or indeed if you look at the way that Twitter and Facebook have um, used their power uh, to silence uh, President Trump, I mean, whatever you think of President Trump, um, you know, those are the decisions of a, a, a small group in California determining, um, you know, the ability of an elected leader to communicate. Now, I'm not going to get involved in whether they were right or they were wrong. You may think either. It doesn't It doesn't really matter. Um, or rather, it doesn't matter for these purposes. Um, but what what that did is it woke up a lot of people in countries around the world, including some Indian members of parliament I was talking to recently, that they are seeing, um, you know, political discourse determined by the um, culture of the West Coast of the United States. Now, that's that's quite something if you live in Delhi. And so I think I think there's um, I think there's a, a reemergence of national identity. Uh, I'm not quite sure I'd call it nationalism because that's got such a negative tone, but you know what I mean, of national identity and and competition. So I think this is this is a challenging moment for all of us. And indeed, the the type of people that you'll have in front of you. Um, in your select committee um, will be different, um, you know, in looking beyond the fact that they represent a corporate organisation, but beyond the, that, um, in terms of their influence, reach and power, as you've just described. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just, you know, uh, so yeah, uh, wow. To be a, a student of politics um, in this day and age um, is, I don't know if it's en- enviable or um, something that's completely frightening. Um, I have to ask one. Um, it's been a while since I, I read any form of international relations, that's for sure. Um, but anyway, Tom, this has been absolutely fantastic to talk to you. Um, I do appreciate you know, how busy you are to be able to sit down. Um, but before we go, before we close out, um, would there be any um, little bit of golden advice you'd think about? Someone listening sat here thinking, crikey, that sounds, I mean, we've gone from the, the micro to the macro in this very short conversation. Um, but someone that might be inspired by this conversation, indeed by your work, not just from our own uh, our own core, because we definitely punch away in, in Parliament. But if you're, you know, not just a veteran or a reservist, but anyone listening, thinking, do you know what? Um, that's a bit of me. I, I want to stand up and serve again. Any bit of advice would you say for them? Uh, look, I, I'd say first of all, get involved in your community. Democracy only works if you take part. It's not an event that happens once every four or five years. It's, it's how we communicate. It's how we deal with each other every day. It's how we resolve differences. And so, you know, being involved in democracy is everything from, you know, campaigning for speed limits on your road outside your house and getting together with friends and neighbours to do it to, you know, changing the direction of the country. And so there's an awful lot you can do, you know, to shape the, you know, to shape the world in which we live. And and you can do it at every level. I'm reminded as uh, I, you know, my bedtime reading, and I'm sure it's yours too, Johnny, is the U.S. Army Field Manual. And you'll remember that uh, very early on, in fact, in Chapter 1, I think it's right at the beginning of Chapter 1, it says, every day do one thing to improve your defensive position. And, and I think the same is true of democracy. Every day do one thing to strengthen your democracy. Now, whether that's not firing off or repeating disinformation that's come over from some random cyber troll in Petersburg, or whether that's, um, you know, smiling and being friendly with your neighbours, whatever it is, you know, joining a political party, any political party, being involved in shaping uh, the the national debate and making sure that it 
it's conducted politely you know we've all got something we can do and it can fit into any working life no matter how busy or, or how much time you've got perfect well i'm not going to top that tom thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure and uh speak to you very soon cheers johnny nice to speak to you thanks to our guests and thank you for listening if you've enjoyed this podcast hit subscribe now alternatively you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below where you can rate donate or become our mate thank you